Hi everyone, welcome to Pod Culture Oz, an Australian pop culture podcast about genre fiction. We're very excited to be here with you again. I'm your host Philippa, and once again I'm joined by my co-host Dave. The film made it easy for readers of the book to misunderstand what it was about, and the misunderstanding will pursue me till I die. And Nick. Mutatis mutandas. This episode, we're joined by podcaster Andrea Mutachi. Welcome to Pod Culture Oz, Andrea. Please tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Andrea Martucci, I'm the host of Shelf Love Podcast. I've been doing that for about three and a half years now. And it is a podcast about romance novels. And somehow along the process, I have become an independent scholar of romance novels and recently started a Substack, as one is wont to do when Twitter craps the bed. Am I allowed to curse? Oh, absolutely. Yep. Although when we tell Twitter Apple, shits the bed. We tell <laughs> Apple that it's clean when I release it, but, you know, it's fine. Where are most of our listeners anyway? That's sneaky. I like it. <laughs> well, you know. And I'd just like to say, I met Andrea last year when she was looking for guests on her podcast. I was on an episode about fairy tales with our friend of the podcast, Renee Dahlia, who was on our Happily Ever After episode. And during that discussion, I mentioned that we had future episodes planned and one was on adaptations and Andrea said she'd like to be part of it. So here we are. So welcome. Thank you. Yes. And we connected after, I think I started by listening to the episode with Renee because I think she said something on Twitter about yeah, she it. Did. And yeah, so I listened to that and then I was doing a bunch of house projects and I basically binged, I think, every single one of your episodes. So it's truly an honor to be here. Oh, thank you. It's very exciting. <laughs> Although you have a much higher production schedule than we do. So, you know, I mean, or if anyone who can do that. So, you know, thank you. Anyway, to get onto the topic, this episode we're going to look at adaptations. But what does that mean? In fiction, an adaptation is adapting a literary source to another genre or medium, such as film, a stage play or a video game. For example, it could be turning a book into a TV show or a play into a movie or a game into a movie or series. I'm not going to talk about musicals this time, but we have talked about Wicked in a past episode, so you're just putting that out there. But what do you think about adaptations in general, Nick? Well, I'm going to take issue immediately with one small part of your definition, which is that there's plenty of adaptations that go backwards. Like, you know, I I had a whole stack of books as a kid that were novelizations of Doctor Who serials. And Star um, Wars novels. Yeah. And and so things go in all sorts of directions, not not least of which is The Last of Us recently, which was a TV show from a video game. So They were just examples. I wasn't saying that it was set in stone. It was just an adaptation from one genre or medium to another. Yeah, a form, I think, is probably form, the, yeah. the, the word I'd go with, right? Only because that lets you kind of bring in this question of formal considerations, which is which is kind of where I get into this, this topic from. I've always loved the process of adaptation. Even bad adaptations are fun, partially because you can pick apart what they screwed up. And Dave will remember far too many conversations about the Lord of the Rings adaptations in, in breaks between classes that somehow always managed to overwhelm the classes themselves. We did not do a lot of attending of tutorials in those days. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I, love the, I love the kind of impossibility of it, maybe. Like the formal considerations of text and, you know, movie and tv show and game are so wildly different that that actually takes just a huge amount of work to move a story across a form in a way that your audience can follow and that's often the hardest part right is that audiences of different forms have different kind of requirements for how they'll understand a story as a story so 
you know, the famous example I always think of is, is the stage actors who can't transition particularly well to the screen because they're so used to acting big and the screen is so capable of, of sort of zoning in on their face that they end up looking quite wooden by comparison. So there's just a lot of a lot of difficulties about transitioning form that I think a really good adaptation manages to perfectly hide. So, yeah, I'm just fascinated by it as a, as a kind of challenge and as a project. Oh, absolutely. I think you're spot on with a lot of those things there. What about you, Andrea? What are your thoughts? Yeah, Nick, I think that one of the things you were talking about there is basically you know, when I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about genre. So I'm coming into this from the perspective of thinking about romance novel adaptation specifically, because that's Mm -hmm. kind of my beat. And I think in particular, when it comes to romance novels, the generic expectations, the expectations of the genre, it's really well understood that the reason romance readers love romance is because they get this predictable, consistent feeling from Mm -hmm. reading romance novels. And it's very hard to replicate that, especially in visual mediums, because, and especially in TV, because of the serious nature and romances by definition need to end in order to have that happily ever after. So personally, I don't think you can do it. I don't think you can get that same feeling from TV in particular, but then when it comes to movies, I think it can be really hit or miss. And I think the reason that is may have something to do with, there's a romance scholar, Jayashree Kamble, who wrote a book called Making Meaning in Popular Romance Fiction, and she talked about romance adaptation specifically. And the way she described it was that novels tell events and show thoughts and feelings, and visual mediums show events and tell feelings. Mm. And when you have a romance novel where so much of your enjoyment as a consumer is wrapped up in a particular feeling, messing with the format is really going to impact the adaptation's ability to give that same feeling. Yeah, you really often struggle with interiority in film, right? There's only a, a very, very small number of ways that you can that you can do that. It's voiceovers, flashbacks to an extent, kind of point of view shots sometimes work, but it's pretty rare. And uh, like, it's it's a weird move, isn't it? Trying to adapt something that is so focused on interiority into a me- into a medium that really struggles with interiority. Exactly. Yep. So yeah. So that's I, in this conversation. I think I, I'm going to think specifically about romance novels, but I also know that's that's not the entire universe of adaptations. Yeah, and I think what you're talking about is going to overlap a bit with what my topic, Andrea, but that's okay. It'd be interesting to have that discussion. And Dave, what about you? Well, my, the first films I ever saw in cinema were adaptations. Masters of the Universe in 87 and Willow in 88. I mean, Masters of the Universe was a terrible film and <laughs> definitely... Not a faithful adaptation. How can you say I mean, that about Dolph? <laughs> Dolph is only in terrible films, and that is enjoyable, but Masters of the Universe is not a He-Man movie. Now, I, I really enjoyed Willow as a kid, but it was, I think, a much more straightforward fantasy adaptation. I was too young to read the books, but I remember my mother talking about, I guess she she wasn't much of a reader, particularly in English, but I do remember her talking about some pieces on the TV where people were saying it was not as good as a book. Can I just say, I didn't even realise that was a book. No, yeah. I think yeah, it stands, stands, I think up, so, as stands up as a movie. It's not a fantastic movie, but it's a fun adventure, yeah. which I enjoyed when I was a kid, but I didn't, it, t- till the, right now, I didn't realise it was a book. So, so much for that. Yeah, look, I, I think, I think, Nick's spot on when he says that formal considerations are sort of the core, they're going to be core to our our discussions here on any of our texts because 
of the different considerations of the media. I mean, d- Nick, I d- you didn't really mention games, but interactivity changes things completely oh, again. Enormously. I think one of the, the real challenges with... So if we, if we take Andrew's example of the of, of feelings, like, and, and ultimately the kind of feelings of desire, your your tools as a writer for, for kind of producing desire kind of rest more on sympathy than empathy you know you, you, you can put yourself into the heads of the character whereas once you're in a game the, the person making the game their their tools are incredibly limited they actually have to touch on your cultural context and they have to make you feel the feeling which is not the same as making you feel a sympathetic feeling it's a massively different challenge i think yeah absolutely i, I really hope that that our friend nat is listening because i think that's actually one of the problem with uve ball's career <laughs> in ad, adapting video games is that if you lose the interactivity there you lose the game and it just makes for really boring and bad adaptations Mm. this episode we're doing something a bit different each person's going to discuss an adaptation why they chose it and whether they think it was good bad or merely forgettable as our guest i'm going to start with andrea what is your selected text or texts and why did you choose them okay all right wait what are my options good bad, merely forgettable. Well, you can have I, I'm going good, bad, and ugly for mine. So you can have good, bad, I, ugly. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm going to immediately for, explode the, the, the trilogy there. So yeah, that's fine. Do, do, do what you need to. <laughs> that's just a framing. For, for your consideration. Okay. For, for your consideration, I, I think that the three that I chose maybe fall into two broad categories, execution and cultural translation where I'm going to bring up the first example, which was The Hating Game. Did any of you watch that adaptation and or read the book? I, I'm, yeah, I've kind of read the book. I didn't really like it, so I didn't finish it. But um. Okay, same. I read the book after I watched the movie adaptation, actually, and I really enjoyed the film. And then I was like, okay, maybe I passed this by unnecessarily, went back and read the book by Sally Thorne and was really unimpressed. And I, I think the reason I enjoyed the adaptation more, part of it had to do with the book being in first person. And first person present the tense main kills character, me. Yes, I, I did not like it. And I think in particular, something that romance authors do is they use kind of that very limited first person to have the usually female main character, really confused and misinterpreting all of the actions. And that can work if the reader is in on it and is like, oh, I know what's going on here. He really likes her. And even though she doesn't get it, we get it. I was confused too in the book. <laughs> I don't think it, it, it didn't quite work. I didn't really get the feeling that the the other person in this relationship was as into her I didn't know what was going on there. And then I think the adaptation did a really good job of showing how Josh, the male main character, was really charmed by her and is pining and is being vulnerable. There were these cool kind of fantasy type scenes where the where you got that interiority into the heroine's kind of feelings about a situation where at one point she's really frustrated and she like tackles him, but it didn't really happen. And she kind of has a sex dream about him at some point. And he's, you know, literally in the film, in bed with her. And so we're getting that interiority. And I think that's why the film really worked. Hmm. And then on top of that, there were there were all these like aesthetic choices that just the vibes were immaculate. The colors were gorgeous. The world that was built in the film really did a lot of the heavy lifting on top of the work of the actors to bring it to life and make me buy it and immerse me, transport me into the story. 
and I bought the romance. And the book didn't. And and I'm I'm mm. chalking that up to execution and, and then some of those kind of choices, you know, in the text, in the original text to, you know, do that really limited first person and then kind of fumble it a little bit. So so that's my first example. <laughs> the next one I want to talk about is North and South, which was a book by Elizabeth Gaskell written in, I want to say, 1865-ish. Yeah. And it, it was originally a serialized, you know, serialized story put out by the same press, by Charles Dickens Press. And the BBC has made multiple adaptations. The most recent had Richard Armitage and Daniela Denby Ashby in it. And I think this one works really well because it does a cultural translation hmm. where, like, I... If, if And I tried to read the book, and I am not one for Victorian literature, because it was just a completely different culture from what I'm used to, and so the emotional beats were not landing for me. Mm. Whereas the BBC adaptation, I think it really put the emotion in a context that I could understand as a modern person, and that helped me actually understand the original context better. So I think mm. it actually layered on top and gave me a new understanding of, of the text where, you know, it wasn't like a remake. It truly was an adaptation of the text. And it did a really good job of making a few changes to kind of make it a little bit sexier for the modern audience, but then also just gave me the ability to understand the stakes, the stakes of the world, mm. even though they're not my world. Mm. Yeah. There's something, the cultural translation piece is a really interesting one. I didn't watch much of it because it just wasn't my thing, but the one that immediately leaps to mind is the swearing in Deadwood, which you know, there's no way you can yeah. say God, God damn and impress upon a contemporary audience the, the kind of blasphemy of that word. So you have to update it to cocksucker and motherfucker. Like there's just no way around it. And that's actually quite a challenge because it requires quite an intense understanding of not only the historical period you're talking about, but also the historical period you're you're talking within it's yeah it's real tough i actually thought <laughs> when you said north and south i thought you might have met the john jakes at version miniseries with patrick swayze is that the yeah oh oh the one about the american, american civil war north and south yeah i yeah, actually uh, yes quite no. <laughs> enjoyed that series when i was in school but when i read the books and went oh the series is actually better <laughs> so that's another one with the same name but i do remember Someone saying to me, oh, we had to read North and South and it wasn't the one with Patrick Swayze. So it was obviously the Elizabeth Gaskell one. <laughs> yeah, I actually just did two episodes about this. So it's very fresh in my mind where I actually with my guest, Helena Greer, she read the book and she kind of provided the this is what happens in the book and here's how it's different. And we we really got into kind of, well, why did they make these choices in the BBC I guess, miniseries adaptation, you know, they made Thornton more violent. There were kind of completely new scenes and verbal exchanges that didn't happen. But I think they were really necessary because if it had been too faithful, I don't think it would have landed, especially for me, right? I mean, the reason I don't enjoy reading the book isn't because it wasn't sweepingly romantic to the people in the original you know, time period it was written. It's so it is, I guess, sweepingly romantic, but it's not going to land that way for me. So I think that translation was necessary. So my last example, I think, combines the two where I want to talk about Mr. Malcolm's List, which this was a book and I believe it was originally self-published in 2009. And then by Susan Elaine, I think her name is. It was a Regency 
that had all white characters and then it had a movie adaptation and all of the main characters were people of color and a lot of the supporting characters as well. So it had that truly colorblind casting where it, it was like Cinderella with Brandy. It was that kind of colorblind <laughs> casting. And, and it was really interesting because I actually did try to read the book and I did not finish it because it was just kind of this like blah tired Regency where the execution of it was not working. And then I think that the adaptation is actually really, really good. And I think that it addressed both the execution failures of the book. And then it also did cultural translation in a way. And, and I guess where I'm going with cultural translation is it wasn't trying to do this like Regency thing. It was like, there's modern viewers and people truly, you know, we love the aesthetics of these historical time periods, like see also Bridgerton, which I know, Philippa, you're going to talk about. And we, we love being transported into another world, but we'd truly like to not have to pretend that we forget about kind of all of these harmful systemic injustices of that time period. And mm. I think Bridgerton kind of fumbles the ball on that in ways when it tries to incorporate people of color into the story, it, but it brings a little bit too much reality into it. It tries to show its work, but it doesn't do it well. I think that Mr. Malcolm's List, it, you know, the male main character actually speaks Yoruba at one point. So it, it acknowledges that there are different cultures, but it basically presents a world in which, you know, yes, there's class and power, but race truly isn't part of it. And so that allowed me to immerse myself into that fantasy and enjoy all the beautiful people and the romance and not be like just confused by like how how it is that this world exists where you know in bridgerton simon's a duke and there is racism but also we're kind of trying to pretend it doesn't exist like it was a confusing it, it didn't hit the right spot in bridgerton in my opinion so i've dipped in and out of Bridgerton as Philip has been watching it. Do you think that there would have been a way to strike a different balance where they actually do examine the racism a bit more? Or is that like outside of the constraints of the genre there? I think part of what's going on in Bridgerton is that if they truly had just, if they hadn't tried to do this queen, what's her name? Queen Charlotte. Charlotte. The, the the, the king falling in love with Queen Charlotte solved racism hmm. because it's like that doesn't make any sense at all. And also then then it really makes you start to question things like, wait a second. So Simon's a duke. And I guess once racism was solved, although we understand that there's still this uncertainty where everything could be taken away from him because of his race. But no, never mind. Racism doesn't exist. Everybody got over it in like five years. But wait a second, where is all of his wealth coming from as a duke? Because I'm pretty sure that he has investments in sugar plantations. Yeah, for the you know what, Yeah, yeah. It's just like you can't kind of have it both ways. And maybe I'm being a hypocrite because if you, you could probably make a lot of the same kind of like, wait a second, where did Mr. Malcolm get his wealth? But it doesn't poke holes in its own world building. 
I think you've just saved a lot of these for me. I, uh, as Ave and Flip know, I get very, very frustrated by a kind of colourblind approach to telling stories about an extremely racist past. And the, the prime example for me is Firefly, where you've got this one black character wandering around in what is quite clearly the Wild West, and they do all these head nods to, oh, there's Chinese people everywhere. But in order to tell a story about what amounts to a bunch of Confederate soldiers being the good guys, they have to completely erase the, the history of slavery and the American Civil War that they're so clearly bouncing off and it's I just once I saw it I couldn't unsee it I found it incredibly frustrating and I although I haven't seen Bridget and I have also as Dave has dipped in and out of it because my flatmate watched it and and I I have the same frustrations it's like you don't solve histories of systemic racism by putting one black woman in a title role in a film about one of the most racist periods in history like it just doesn't it just doesn't work but I like your take that it's it's actually just about securing uh, the fantasy it's not just hand waving and saying it's a fantasy world therefore it's actually a quite deliberate choice to secure the fantasy as a fantasy because in a way if you if you drop the race out of it it actually does also let you obscure the kind of horrifying class history that's also at play in that moment even though the class history is part of the sexiness i'll talk yeah, about that absolutely. a bit more when i yeah i'll talk about that a bit more when i get to my segment but yes i have thoughts <laughs> i do actually love andrea that that you you seem to really enjoy film adaptations of books i think coming from from the science fiction fantasy genre world and the oh, and the video games world where adaptations are much more fraught i don't know if that's because we're attached in in our little corner of, of literature where we're more attached to the original text but I, th- I think there are the the number of cases where the adaptation is at least as well received as the original text are fewer and further between. I have to point out the fact that I just talked about three adaptations I enjoyed and I did not enjoy any of the books. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Even even though two of them are quite literally romance novels and then you could make a pretty good case for North and South being, you know, basically the Victorian version of one. I think that if a book... I really, really loved as a book was adapted, I might be a bit of a harsher critic because then the adaptation has to meet or exceed my feelings. And then anything that is in contradiction to what I loved about the original text is then going to start to chafe me. Mm. So I, I will just say, I mean, I have not been put in a position yet of having a book that I truly love be adapted because Given the breadth and depth of the romance genre, even though there have been romance adaptations, it just has, I mean, there's just so many books out there that will never see an adaptation that there's just, I think, a lot more room for me to be like, oh, well, the ones that they did make, I didn't like those books and I don't feel too personally about, you know, that adaptation specifically. Yeah, fair enough. The fact that in some cases you went backwards is is also fascinating. I don't think I can... Mm. I can think of some works where I definitely watched the film first, but I never got around to reading the book. I don't know if I've actually gone backwards myself. I've gone backwards a couple of times, but actually with oddly similar results to Andrea. The one that I think of is Through a Scanner Darkly, which is a Philip K. Dick book that was turned into a movie that was rotoscoped. Rotoscoped, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, starring Keanu Reeves. And I watched the film and I was broadly unimpressed. It was fine. Like, it wasn't amazing. It was just fine. I just remember thinking, yeah, I understood what you were getting at within the first 20 minutes and then you made me sit through 90 minutes of this with no real resolution. And so I thought, 
well, everyone raves about Philip K. Dick. I'm going to go back and read the book. And the movie was such a perfect beat-for-beat adaptation of the book that the, the movie had succeeded in ruining the book for me. So I never finished the book. I was like, well, this is also really boring. So I actually think a bad adaptation there robbed me of a, a quite an exciting experience. I think The Man in the High Castle is probably a better adaptation of Dick's work. Well, he's he's notoriously hard to adapt from... Uh, and yet from his catalogue is, like, really well. Yeah, well, yeah, but yeah. also, like, goldmine of adaptations. Mm-mm-mm. Blade Runner, obviously, being yeah. the you know, key. And Total Recall. Mind you, Total Recall is apparently radically different. Like, it, it, they don't, they're not anything like each other. It's I guess he film. just... <laughs> <laughs> he sold a lot of his rides, but... But the screenwriters probably go in there and realise that you might be able to get away with the synopsis, but not the actual detail. Yeah, yeah. Part of what he does is is ambiguity, and 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 a lot of his stories. But Total Recall is a perfect example. Uh, again, I haven't actually read any of his work, so I'm going off reputation here and going off the films. But Total Recall, in particular, seems to have a lot of its story rest on details that change. And actually, when you change a detail in a film, your audience feels cheated. Whereas you can change a detail in a book and, and it's, it becomes much, much harder, I think, to get away with it in a movie. Well, while you're talking, Nick, what are your adapted texts that mm. you've chosen? Well, so I've picked a couple. I'm going to go through two real quick just because I think they have something interesting going on. The Martian is another example of sci-fi that the book is worse than the film. The book was basically written by one guy who just kept asking Reddit questions and then turned whatever they said into a part of the story. And the main character in The Martian is awful. Like, he's just an absolutely awful person who, if I was on Mars with him, I would either kill him or myself. He's just one of the worst people I've ever encountered in fiction. And not worst evil. He's just bland, uninteresting, seems obsessed with with doing pranks all the time and everyone seems to hate the pranks that he pulls and yet the author keeps telling us over and over and over again how much everyone likes him and I'm like I don't think you understand your own character mate like nobody would like this guy he's awful there's a reason he's alone on Mars anyway <laughs> the film was great and he's about as interesting as a potato really yeah right and actually in the end it turns out the potatoes are more important anyway true that's the Martian. So I think, and I think part of the problem, Dave, is sci-fi is incredibly visual. You know, there's constant descriptions of, of big, broad action that are extremely physical and it's easy to get them wrong. Or Whereas, to not match what, what goes on in the head of the reader. Yeah, we all end up with these enormous cinematic imaginative sequences in our minds when we're reading sci-fi and who the hell's going to succeed in putting that on screen. But the second one that I just want to mention very, very quickly in passing is Fight Club, which is, I don't know, I haven't watched it again recently. I loved it as a teenager. I suspect that I may be a little bit too reconstructed now to think it's a good movie anymore. But one of the things I found really interested, interesting when I went back and read the book, because I read the book after the movie, is that the movie is, its I wouldn't call it Marxist, but it's definitely got one eye on class. It is a sort of, like the, the, the fight clubs that spring up and the movement that Tyler Durden pulls together is not as anarchic as it is in the books. So the book has this radically different flavour that, that jars quite massively with the, like the book's extremely nihilist and extremely anarchist and the film to me feels a little bit more hopeful, which is insane when you consider the film, but it feels a little bit more hopeful and, and a little bit more organised than an anarchist might be. Is the the book as heavily focused on the alienation of of men in Western society? No, nowhere near as much. It's mainly 
I mean, if anyone's alienated, it's Tyler Durden himself, you know, from himself. Mm. And the, the one thing that I remember is just the extreme body horror. I mean, Palahniuk does a lot of body horror in the writing that he he does. So, like, Durden's body is just slowly falling apart. Like, he's he's losing teeth and, like... I think fingernails and like he's just you know he's slowly getting more filthy and he stops bathing and it's just it's quite gross like the scene sounds amazing that'd be great on film yeah well except except that no audience in the 90s would have put up with that happening to the same extent like Edward Norton gets a bit beat up because he keeps for some reason having you know bare knuckle boxing matches but it's not quite the same as as the description in the book and Planiac does this a lot it's interesting because at um, Romance Writers of Australia conference one year we had an Australian a script doctor or, um, who was one of the people who adapted Fight Club as a presenter. So he talked about going through the book and working out what would work on screen and what wouldn't. So that was a really interesting, it was a seminar, I think. Mm. But he was did a very interesting any examples, presenter. Give any examples of what did or didn't, were like anything they had to discard or leave on the cutting room floor? Look, I haven't read the book, so I can't remember specifically, but they talked about having the two actors for the dual role rather than, you know, so that's, Visually, oh, a difference for the audience, for the internal. That's genius. The whole film wouldn't yeah. work without it. Yep. And we used Fight Club and Out of Africa as our two adaptations because obviously Out of Africa was a memoir and that got adapted as an Academy Award-winning movie. I think it's pretty mm-hmm. boring, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> just going to say Out of Africa couldn't be made today. Like, we, you know, we, I sort of mourn the, the death of the, the mid-budget film but it is, it is very slow and almost has no point. And, I mean, it's rooted in colonial history, so I don't think yeah. you'd make it today anyway. Well, not without colourblind casting that, that almost threatened to how, un, how unhinge could, its entire cast. I'm making a very bad joke. Oh, my God. <laughs> It'd be like trying to have colourblind casting in 12 Years a Slave or Django Unchained. It's just not possible. So the one that I actually want to talk about is one where I went backwards twice, and I'm, I'm almost certain no one else will have had anything to do with this other day if you might have read roadside picnic i've about halfway through yeah it's it's a game called stalker shadow of chernobyl and for no reason that anyone can explain stalker is is an acronym so it's got full stops after each letter i've never been able to figure out why but in stalker shadow of chernobyl you're this kind of you know merkley ex-military person wandering around the chernobyl containment zone around the nuclear reactor and in this particular kind of fantasy version of 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 chernobyl there are these things called anomalies that are that are kind of dotting the zone and they will do various things to you like they might you know throw you up into the air or they might crush your body or they might sort of start to poison you and if you can get to the heart of these anomalies you can actually pick up this these artifacts and then sell them for an enormous amount of money or because it's a first person shooter slot them into your weapons and turn them into a scientific super weapon but the interesting thing about Stalker is that the alternate history that it tells is one in which the Russian government were doing these sort of psychic experiments and, and somehow triggered a sort of psychic hive mind under the nuclear reactor in, you know, 1987. And so it, the whole thing, the whole radioactive disaster was a cover-up. And, you know, this, this story feels like it's been naturally composed for Chernobyl because Chernobyl is the, is the perfect example in our cultural imagining of a kind of nuclear disaster, of a disaster that, that, that may be you know, almost almost Lovecraftian disaster that kind of tears apart the very material of creation, right? And it's has these long-term effects and can create strange anomalies that can impact the body in invisible and bizarre ways. But it turns out that not only was the book this is based on turned into a game, but it was also turned into a movie and you could not ask for three more radically different texts that apparently come from the same 
uh, source because the movie Stalker is by Tarkovsky and it is such a bizarre movie. I think everyone should watch it, but probably not more than once. It's three hours long. The first and last half hour are in colour and the middle bit is 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 black and white. And the it, the middle bit is mostly just as a man wandering around a kind of wildernessy place throwing little nuts and bolts from a pouch on his bag into into these kind of areas that we're meant to assume are anomalies and then avoiding them. And there's no special effects and there's no effort whatsoever made to, to sort of actually convince you that these anomalies are there. And in fact, the computer game takes this, this the throwing of the bolts. You have this little bag of bolts and you can throw bolts into these apparently safe spaces and the, the bolt will do something if, if it's a particular kind of anomaly. So you navigate the zone by throwing these bolts out there. But the, the film can't do this at all. So it just turns into this extremely slow, meditative and at times quite boring bit where this guy is kind of wandering through this incredibly dangerous industrial wasteland trying to kind of locate these artefacts to bring back and sell to the military. And it's also he can save his daughter who's very, very sick as a result of having been into the zone. And then Roadside Picnic, Dave, which you're halfway through, is probably closer to Tarkovsky's Stalker, but has an it's aliens, right? It's so bizarre to consider that it's gone from aliens to a sort of totally, you know, amorphous threat that's never really explained to to your nuclear reactor. And book's quite up front. I think I can't remember where, where it is in the book, but there's a there's a character who walks into one of these anomalies and just loses all the bones in his legs. His legs are still there, but the bones are gone. And so he you know, he only shows up in the book in a, a wheelchair because he can't be a stalker anymore. And so the anomalies in the book are just incredibly horrifying in a way that they, they don't manage in either the film or the or the video game. But the bit that I find the most interesting is not just the sort of switch from alien to whatever but it's also the, the weirdness that both roadside picnic and the movie stalker were made prior to the chernobyl disaster so the fact that it fits so neatly and cleanly into chernobyl is just historical accident but the other kind of scary thing is the movie was made on a, a stretch of land that is now understood to be the most polluted in in the former soviet union because chernobyl was more of a symptom i think than than a cause of a lot of Soviet destruction of the environment. And about three or four people on the crew, on the crew of Tarkovsky's film died from exposure to, to toxic chemicals just from wandering around this space. So they'd somehow managed to pick this space that was full of invisible threat and it turned out to actually be full of invisible threat and didn't make it onto the, onto the screen because it's very, very hard to put invisible threats on screen. So that's my that's my selection. I think it's great because I think each of the three respond to the requirements of form and you end up with three quite unique and intriguing stories as a result. It really feels like these are more retellings or reimaginings yes. than, than adaptations yeah. though. I had written down in my notes with three asterisks and an underline to ask later as a bit of a throwing a bomb in the room, but is a remake just an adaptation? But I think I think you're right. The more what's the what's the phrase you hate, Flip? Spiritual spiritual successes? Just don't go there. We were well, watching it, the anime of Roadside Picnic and I quite enjoyed that. It's not it's not Roadside Picnic. It's called Other Side Picnic. And, oh, Other Side Picnic. And I mean it it's starts with there's there's another place which is dangerous and and has anomalies that that are invisible and you have to throw rocks into but that's just a starting point and they wander around collecting artifacts to take back and sell which is what you said yeah yeah but it it is definitely not the same story as as roadside picnic at all which which is totally fine i, I was expecting some sort of weird isekai thing <laughs> with two girls but it, it turned out to be a really cool slow and interiorized internalized mm. examination of a relationship between two young women and and that yeah that was really cool 
So Nick, I wanted to ask about The Martian because it's interesting that it was brought up earlier, the idea of going back to texts, because mm. I think the number of people who see something and then find out there's a book and mm. don't get curious about the book, I, I think that's actually more people tend to want to go check it out because they're looking for more of the same. And actually, yeah. Philippa, when you talk about when you talk about Bridgerton, I'll have more to say about that. But <laughs> good. I, I, I'm actually one of those people who saw the Martian movie with Matt Damon and then went back and read the the story. So with The Martian, one of the things I really enjoyed about the film was Donald Glover's character and all of those yeah. scenes with NASA. And and I think that there were these really delightful, not just performances, but scenarios where they characterized things that I believe in the book were they were just kind of like and then they figured this out whatever mm. and and i don't remember i don't remember them fleshing out those characters Do no i don't think they, they did, did at all i don't and, and and that oh they figured it out that was the most irritating thing about the book is every chapter started with i've got a problem and then they explain the problem in great detail and then the chapter ends and then the next chapter starts with literally i figured it out and then he just explains the solution you don't see the actual solutionizing you don't see him testing anything so they actually put all of that interstitial stuff into the movie in a way that actually makes it a quite robust story and as you say you get these fun little moments like sean bean having to explain what the fellowship of the ring is which is one of the most perfect cultural touchstones of our time because you know how often do you get to see an actor explain one of his previous roles in a different role like it's just great we love those moments we mm. do dave what about your texts i want to actually talk about ender's game which was a 1985 novel by austin scott card made into a film in 2013 i want to quickly acknowledge that card is a bit of a problematic figure in science fiction in the last 10 to 20 years but just acknowledge it and move on because Ender's Game is an iconic book that really influenced a generation of of nerds and and I think it is important and it definitely felt important that it was ad adapted in 2013. I came out of the cinema thinking how did that hit every significant plot point and every significant line of dialogue and make a film that really felt mm. to miss the point which which to to go back to what you said nick about changing details being a really fraught thing to do in in adaptations they did not change details and i, th I think the the problem i, I rewatched it just to because because i you know i wanted to talk about it this in a, in a bit of detail and i and that that sense that they'd that they got everything right and and did it wrong, yeah, <laughs> a contradiction. Won every battle but lost the war. Yeah. So I th I think we we kind of do need to talk. Like it's partly hampered by its runtime, in that like the so so the middle section of the book where Ender is training to be the great strategic genius to to lead the the fleets of Earth against. So the book calls them buggers, which is obviously a terrible name. <laughs> and they go straight to formics in the film. And I think that's a detail mm. worth changing. So so the middle part of the book is is where all the real character development happens. The one I think the stuff that really people attach to. Because it's about this this quiet, shy person learning to come out of their shell and, and become a leader of people. And a lot of that transformation is done or expressed in the battle room, which is like the the simulator, I guess. It's a very physical, like it's a physical simulation where where the kids basically are the starfighters, and there's not enough time spent on that, which is silly because it is like 
you know, those those are three or four really solid set pieces, which which could have been really cool to to work with. And basically, in order to compress time, they have to do things like obvious setups, where they they do something in practice and they immediately use it in a battle mm. in the film mm. whereas in in the book it's sort of like it's internalized and discussed and so on and to go back to what you're saying about the martian they work through the problem right yep. and i think the really one of the other main problems is is that question of interiority right like one of the reasons that ender is is the perfect fit for this great strategist is that that he has an inherent empathy to go with his really strong survival instincts and so they quote the line where what does he say i don't think you can defeat someone if you can't truly understand them Mm. and if you in that moment where i defeat them i i love them and then i destroy them and and in the film and it just says it (laughs) yeah and i think i think you're right i think to make that work better you actually have to lean into its gameness Mm. so that the battle like because the beauty of that book is 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 entirely in that twist where where the game shows up and ender first feels really unhappy that he's been given this impossible to solve like the one where it's just one starfighter and like a planet-sized blob of enemy ships and his first response is actually fuck you like i can't win this why are you doing this to me and the genius of the book hinges on the fact that that you know something's not quite right but you can't put your finger on what's not quite right and you just get swept along in the gameness of it Mm. which is that that feels to me like the story you'd need to tell if you're adapting that book now because in a way that's the world we live in right we're all hooked by these algorithms that sort of guess what we're about to do next and as a result our lives can often feel quite frictionless but scary in that you can you can just feel like you're riding this wave of a computer telling you what to do and how to do it and you know you and i know dave as gamers that sometimes you do just get a level in a game where you just do go this isn't fair what are you doing and and so like all of that's extremely recognizable to a particular kind of gamer and a particular kind of gen xer and a particular kind of nerd and and really you have to you have to bring that out a lot so that the twist hurts because the twist does hurt in the book you're like oh god he's been killing like how long has he been killing people like, yeah, uh, you know, and he doesn't know, and you don't really know as a, as a as a reader either, and that's that's the guts of it. That I agree, the film didn't get it all. Like, it just just didn't didn't seem to understand its own yeah. source material. I, I wonder if they'd been able to go R rated, and you can see mm. way more of the violence, yeah. so you can you can understand. Because I think on a reread, it's quite clear that Ender ends the threats to his life when you know he kicks. Stilson to death in school in the opening scene and then does the same to Bonzo in the shower like as a reader you can infer that he's really fucked these other boys up yeah right and if they'd gone R-rated because you know the the camera is not Ender and even in the book the camera is often quite omniscient you could linger on a clearly dead human being that Ender never looks at yeah, what's the default perspective of film? Because I think if you don't think about it really hard, the default perspective of film is an omniscient third person perspective. And 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 you actually have to think about it quite a bit if you're going to do something like like avoid <laughs> avoid the omniscient third person perspective. 
I mean, like, how do you do an unreliable narrator, right? I, yeah. I was thinking yeah. about that recently with I'm thinking of ending things, which is an adaptation. And it was a very interesting adaptation playing with that idea of an unreliable narrator where yeah. it, it in film, I mean, you're truly confronted with it, right? Mm. I think in text, you know, written stories, I think that, I don't know, it doesn't seem as obvious when when it makes that choice yeah i i'm thinking of ending that's it's charlie kaufman isn't it is that the one yeah yeah i loved it except <laughs> except that i was so interested in her and the more it was revealed that she was this kind of confected imagined perfect girlfriend that was combined from all of his previous girlfriends the more i hated him like i just i i absolutely hated him by the end and i felt so sorry for her for having to live this kind of shitty life where she was constantly mistaken for somebody else and then only to have it revealed right at the end that she wasn't even real anyway oh i just it made me so angry i mean that almost seems to come back to i mean dave the what you're talking about with Ender's Game, what you didn't enjoy about it, where the film didn't seem aware that it basically was an unreliable narrator or should have been. I think that that is kind of getting at that interiority, right? Yeah. Where I think in a lot of the fictional stories we enjoy, I mean, we're basically dealing with an unreliable narrator, right? I mean, yeah. that that's how you kind of immerse into somebody else's experience and transport yourself into the story. Mm. And there is that distance with film where I think a lot of adaptations that maybe fall flat, they do default to that just, you know, omniscient third where mm. it's like, okay, well, I just have to trust everything I'm seeing as this is what's actually happening. Yeah. And then when when films can be like, you know, we're going to like let you understand that this isn't really happening, but this is somebody's experience of a situation. Yeah. When we were rewatching Ender's Game, the second half of it in particular really reminded me of, it's a different story, but there's a lot of things that reminded me of Starship Troopers movie. And mm. that's an adaptation which is very different from its source material, but I think they both stand up in their own right. So I think that's an adaptation that's done quite well. Like they took the bits that worked and made the story that is a bit different, but it's still a good movie. I mean, they, they changed the philosophical core for Starship Troopers, right? To fit was... with the modern times. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I don't they, know, the modern times are too... a bit fascist anyway. Yeah, they did it almost too well. That I watched that film again recently and it doesn't feel like satire. I think it, that was it the did thing. when it was made, though. No, no I don't think it did. That's... I completely disagree. I think it just felt like a big, glitzy, weird... Like, I think a lot of people miss that it was satire and that's one mm. of the reasons it hasn't had its hasn't had the popularity that maybe it deserves. I don't think <laughs> I did when I was that young either, to tell the truth. No, I didn't. I didn't pick it as satire. I knew something was a bit skewer for it because it was... It, it seemed to take itself too seriously. Yeah. And, and that's the genius of it. Because it, it, that's such a funny film because the way it's shot and the people it cast jar so strongly with the, with its own content. Like having Johnny Rico be this enormously square-jawed man who's chiseled out of equal parts apple pie and stars and stripes, then end up putting on a literal Nazi uniform as he goes off to fight the bugs. Like it's too much. Like it's just, <laughs> it's too obviously something. Yeah. But it doesn't read a satire part partially because it just reads like this kind of schlocky Days of Our Lives-esque. Like, it's it's the way it's shot, right? It's the hypersaturation of the colours and the kind of really crisp, kind of buttery camera work. Like, it's just, it's totally ridiculous. And it's shot, like, Verhoeven's adaptation is very much straight up, this is a war story, right? And yeah. you're, you're inclined, we're, we're conditioned 
to yeah. tr- take war stories very straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. And so he, he almost he's almost too good. Yeah, fantastic. I want to I want to pivot to horror now. Actually, so we don't talk about video games as much as as we probably would like on, on this podcast. But I want to talk about the adaptations of the Friday the Thirteenth movies to video games, because there were two video games almost 30 years apart. The first one was in 1989 for the Nintendo Entertainment System, and it is widely panned as a terrible game in its, <laughs> in its own right as a game and definitely is an adaptation. I've, we'll put a link to some gameplay footage in, in the show notes, but essentially it is a side-scroller, which many games on the NES were because there, <laughs> there weren't many other ways to do a video game at the time. And it's got a few RPG elements, but it just doesn't work right like you needed side scrollers need a lot of enemies and and shooting and throwing things and that is definitely not what friday the 13th is about Um, i wonder if it was just a game they had ready to go so they just slapped a friday the 13th sign on it and so they had a tie-in for the movie that i i definitely get the sense that a lot of video game tie-ins at the time were something like that like or that you just copy the formula so in 2017, they, they released an asymmetrical horror game, which, which is a much more interesting setup. Essentially, one player is selected at random from the pool of, of players that join the game to play Jason. And Jason will stalk all of the other players across the map, which is, which is modeled on one of the iconic summer camps from the, from the various films. And Jason's goal is to kill them all before they either run down the timer and he can't kill them all manage to repair a car and escape or go through a very elaborate and very difficult to pull off sequence of events to to actually kill jason which you know was was done in in the films i don't think we ever even tried that oh it is it is really tough so yeah this is one of the games that that we played during the pandemic and it's great. It is great. It's asymmetrical. So in as uh, new players find out, Jason is very unstoppable early on. And like the more you play, the more you, you get perks to sort of even that out. And you do learn ultimately that if you get up on Jason, you can just troll him until the timer runs out. <laughs> but I think it much more captures the film, right? That whole stalking and Jason's got supernatural powers so so like he can just keep the the other players off balance and jump in and out and he's you know if you get caught with Jason and you don't know what you're doing you are screwed. And I think it adapts the original work without necessarily telling the stories because honestly stories in slasher fakes aren't yeah. that important most of the time there someone had sex that they weren't meant to have sex and so now they're dead yeah pretty much yeah. but I think so the na- the fact that it's an adaptation actually killed it because, <laughs> because one of the, one of the problems with the game is that there's there's been almost no new content forever and that's because the game was caught up in copyright litigation and it was an innocent bystander because there there are two parties that lay claim to the Jason character. I think somebody has claim on the Friday the 13th title and the other on the Jason character. So they've mm-hmm. been finding it out in the courts and basically that put a stop to, to any new content on the game. Instead of being a direct, direct adaptation, it could have stayed as a, sort of an homage 
which with its working title Slasher Volume One Summer Camp. Yeah, and and just just a, a nice bit of trivia. One of the one of the skins that you can get for Jason is the ridiculous blue color that 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 was from the <laughs> NES game. It's atrocious. <laughs> that is a great little callback. It, it is. It is great. I. I wish I could recommend it, but it's really hard to play because it's online only, and you rely. Yeah, on other and you really do need five friends. Yeah, we had a great time with it, but yeah, it. it I wouldn't say it outstayed its welcome, but we just we got to the end of the content. Yeah, like, but then to be honest, most horror stories get to the end of the content, and that doesn't seem to stop them releasing game after <laughs> game. You know, movie after movie after movie. Yeah. Well, they tried to resurrect a bunch of those famous slasher series for film in the 2000s, and they all died mm. on the vine, pretty much. Probably for the best. Yeah. So, Flip, do you want to talk about Bridgerton? I want to talk about three different series, which are all on Netflix, and they are Virgin River, Bridgerton, and Sweet Magnolias. And the reason I wanted to look at these is they are all book series that have been adapted, and they've done them in different ways. And I kind of wanted to do a compare and contrast. I can start with Bridgerton because we've already touched on it. Now, Bridgerton is by Julia Quinn. It's an eight-book series, eight siblings, eight books. I don't think they're going to get eight seasons on the TV show. What's your thought on that, Andrea? I just don't think it has enough. St- no, I think I think already we're seeing signs of it, of the interest waning. Yeah. Uh, because it, it'll never stand up to what people want it to be. Look, it, it is visually amazing it's just a feast for the eyes but I think part of the problem they're going to have is structural and I understand why they've done it this way so each season of the tv show is one book and that's and I've mentioned before in a romance series about a set of characters or a family whatever each book gets its own happily ever after at the end even if the whole setting and meta arc goes on so What's happening with Bridgerton is at the end of each season, which coincides with a year in the, you know, 1813, 1814, 1815. So you've got some, they're completely ignoring the Wars, which really upsets me. But they're completely ignoring a lot about the time period. I, I understand. <laughs> Look, this is literally what I did my thesis on. So, they're, but they're, they're coinciding it with the London season. So they're having a marriage or an engagement at least at the end of the London season each time. But the problem as a viewer with this kind of structure, I mean, there's, there is certainly a sense of fulfilment at the end of a season. But then what happened at the end of season one is their male main character didn't come back. He was unhappy with not being the lead actor anymore. And I don't know if he'd been signed to a second season or, or wasn't signed till quite, they didn't approach him till quite late, but he just walked off. And... While the second season was a ratings hit and the characters in that were quite popular as well, it's like, well, is this going to happen each time? Are you going to lose the characters that you've just spent like 10 episodes, 10 hours watching because they're no longer important to the story? And that structure, it works okay in a book series, but I don't really think it works in a TV series. And... Because if you're constantly getting to know these characters, getting involved with them, and then they're just gone, where's your continuity as a viewer? The continuity is the mother and, and the Lady Danforth, or is, what's, is that her name? Lady Danbury. Danbury, they're the, they're the continuity. Yeah, and I, I think Bridgerton got praised for, you know, some people called it colorblind casting. It was not colorblind. No. I, I think 
the the show got a lot of kind of kudos for that and I don't think they did it well no matter what but it's very interesting when you have this like white family at the center where the main characters are always going to be one of the Bridgertons. Yes. And then when we, we understand that the love interest that is kind of introduced and brought forth in each season, they've kind of had people of color be those love interests. And it kind of turns into this like mystery of the week or like whatever feeling that you have in, in serialized stories where these people pop in and then they pop out and I think that it's not a good look in particular for a, for a series that has really billed itself as being super progressive. Like there, and some of those things, as you're talking about, Philippa, are it's just the way TV contracts work, and it's it's just kind of the format. But I, I think it really reveals yeah. the the erosion of that. You know, I do understand that, but my. And when I get to Virgin River, I'll talk about why I think they've done that differently. But I'd, I, if they'd really wanted, what's his name, Jean Regis, the guy who played the Duke in the first one, if they wanted him, they could have contracted him to three years from the start. They didn't do that. Yeah. And so they've just had Daphne, who married him, say in season two a couple of times, oh, he's back at the estate, I'm here with the baby kind of thing. Feels really hollow and a cheap excuse. It makes him feel like an absent husband. Yeah. Well, you know, that's kind of consistent with the period, really, of the... Of the ton class, <laughs> it's it's funny though, isn't it? Like, what's consistent, what's not? We're, yeah. This is this is Nicholas Cage territory, right? Yeah. Like the because you know, you know, oh, there's black people. Oh, there's no Napoleonic Wars. Oh, there's a white family. Like at the point at which you've decided to sort of step away from from the kind of historical source material, you, there's sort of no limit to what you can do. And then the question becomes like, what what are you trying to keep? And it's one of the things that I liked about your point at the beginning, Andrea, about like, yeah, there's class and power, but there's no racism. It's like, what are you trying to keep? You're trying to keep power because power is sexy. You just, but you don't want to keep the bad power and you want the froofy clothes uh, and the way of referring to one another, but actually you don't really want the Napoleonic Wars. And in a way you could almost just have a completely colorblind family. Like there's no reason for the family all to be white. Like if we're, if we're stepping away from histories of colonialism, we might as well step away from what we know about genetics as well. If, if it's, if it's all just meant to be good fun. So it is interesting the things that break or don't break people's immersion in this kind of a product. Julia Quinn's books, I don't really enjoy them. I find her writing's not my style, but they're very much beloved by the people. But she has very much said she's only writing about white characters. She doesn't write about people of colour because that's not her experience and whatever. But they're selling the first book of the series, I think it's The Duke Who Loved Me, with the black actor on the cover now, even though it's not a black character in the story. Does so, the story engage with race at all? No. Or, so you could read it like, as colourblind if you felt like it. Sorry, do you mean the text? Do, yeah, do you mean the, the, the book. Julia Quinn's? Yeah. 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 It's it's all white characters. They're yeah, all but, white. And they explicitly call them out as being white. It's it's assumed. Assumed. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, which, which means that if you do put a black woman on the, on the cover, you could just end up with an entire generation of readers of this book who don't make that assumption and, and forgive the bad pun, their impression and their kind of visualisation is entirely coloured by the casting. Wow, talk about formal consideration. Yeah. I kind of boycotted it. I mean, not like officially, but I have, I actually did a whole episode about adaptations and I talked about Julia Quinn quite a bit. She bothers me quite a bit. And, and I think it's exactly the reason several of you were just talking about with, you know, now she's profiting from these adaptations and 
she's getting credit for basically presenting this diverse story. And there truly are people who are going to the original texts and they're buying them with, you know, a, a black man on the cover or a South Asian woman on the cover. And then they're getting in and they're like, wait a second, these people are all white. And all the things that I thought I liked about the adaptation are not actually here hmm. in the original text. And it, I actually, I literally did a research project on people <laughs> who watched Bridgerton and then were like, let me go back to the book. And basically a lot of people were really interested because of the, you know, diverse casting and the aesthetics, which you were talking about, Philippa, like it is, it is beautiful. It is a beautiful it's, world that has, been, that has been stunning, created. But it's not in her books. And so it, what's, what's if, the... If you, exactly, yeah. What are the markers of... I was just going to ask, what are the markers of whiteness in the book? Because that's... The, I'm really intrigued by this. Like, how does the book lay out the character's whiteness? The, the, the delicate fair skin and the blonde or red hair. Yeah. And and in the books, and I actually, I don't know if it's in the books, but they have Queen Charlotte announcing someone as the diamond of the first water to be the the number one debutante of the season, kind of thing. So it's right. it's the framing is with a, a gossip columnist narrating, a secret gossip columnist, which is again, oh, that's what I was going to say earlier. That, that's actually a trope that comes from Georgette Hare, and Georgette Hare is invented the historical romance genre, wrote in it extensively. But she, while she, she started off writing a lot about the ton, she expanded outwards she had you know bath settings she had other settings she talked about demobilized soldiers and she and i one a regency author at a conference i was at said we're all playing in georgette Hare's world that she created a hundred years ago we kind of need to update that and i agree i used to read quite a bit of regency but i noticed a change certainly after the gfc when every single male lead became a duke like fuck that <laughs> because 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 jane austen didn't write about dukes and Georgia Hay almost never did. I think she had two dukes in all her books. And this is, you know, I think Renee talked about it as the American prosperity doctrine, you know, They've, in contemporary there are billionaires in historicals, they're dukes. That might also just be a kind of broad misunderstanding of the peerage, which is admittedly unfathomably complex. B. Romance but regencies are basically just fan fiction yeah. at this point of, yeah. of the idea of the regency. Like yeah. they're, and again, like what do you decide needs to be there for it to feel quote unquote historical historically accurate and traditionally in you know traditional romance publishing it is assumed that part of that fantasy is well well we know you know and this is not true historically there's no people of color in these stories yeah. and you know you you can debunk that factually but it does get pretty thorny the, pretty yeah. quickly though if you start engaging with I mean, you know, you could easily have uh, you could easily have a, a, a kind of love story set between two black people in the Regency, but once you start entering into that white and black, like the kind of interracial romance, you do end up in some not impossible territory by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm sure there are people who've done it. I'm sure you both know examples, but you do start to engage with a very different power dynamic. I'm thinking immediately of the Mad Woman in the Attic in Jane Eyre and, and the White SOC. Yeah, the beautiful version in White's, I guess I see. Like, that's that's like an immediate, that immediately ju jumps to mind. And it's tough to tell happily ever after in in a, a world that racially charged because the very forces that conspire to make black people invisible in that history also conspire to make their lives worse in, in, in their own present. Look, the depiction of Queen Charlotte as a woman of colour is not without 
basis in history. It's not entirely known, but there are portraits of her that show her quite dark skin. She came from a Spanish royal house and it's believed, looking at the marriage lines and family tree, she may have had Moorish blood. So that's not a fabrication. I, I actually recently watched the the first part of a video on YouTube by by black YouTuber Princess Weeks who does a culture critique and she 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 said I mean yes Princess Charlotte had, had black ancestry but it's generations ago like she she definitely wouldn't have been considered black no she wouldn't have but I think the the article I read about it which was a researcher said it's because of the consanguinity and the inter family relationships that she genetics you know she looked darker than all the other people in it her just happens it just happened and she certainly didn't identify herself as a black queen and she wasn't no, treated that, been, that way no. that would have been death death to her her queendom <laughs> yeah but even if you say that okay she was she had moorish heritage and she was a spanish princess who became the queen consort of england she had a tragic life in that well you know partly tragic she had a lot of children i think there was 13 or something and her husband went mad with what we believe is porphyria and he went in and out of bouts of madness and that would have been very difficult for her in a a foreign country and he just was sent completely over the edge when he's he came out of a bout of madness at one point and found out that his favorite daughter amelia had died while he was non-compass mentis and he never recovered from the ensuring madness at that point and that's when the prince regent took over as the prince regent and that's where the period gets its name from so while she would have had a very privileged and pampered life it wouldn't necessarily have been an easy life and i do think she's a very interesting character but the thing that matters is what andrea pointed out at the beginning was cultural translation like how do you make this story recognizable to an audience and i don't want to go into bat for the for the author but I can imagine she might be feeling a bit of cultural whiplash when she sits down to write Regency fanfic and then suddenly gets pilloried for not putting a whole lot of a whole lot of black people in it because someone else made the choice to put black people in it as a result of an urge to kind of culturally translate it. Yeah, but she, but Shonda Rhimes, Shondaland is making the production, and that's what Shonda Rhimes does. Every one of her shows, every one of her shows does that, so it shouldn't be a surprise if she offers you to to make your series. Are we, are we imagining? Are we imagining that the woman who wrote these books charged on into Shonda Rhimes' office out of no, nowhere no. and said, "Make no. my full." No, like, she would have got an offer. It was huge yeah. news. Like it broke on Twitter. Yeah. It broke on the romance forums. Yeah, that's Sh- Shonda Land's making saying. Bridgerton into a series, and it was like, yeah. "Wow, okay, that means colorblind part casting." That was the immediate. Response. The author didn't sit down when she wrote the first book and went, ha, 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 I'm going to profit off colorblind casting. No, no, of course, I'm not saying she did. No, no, I'm just, I'm not arguing with you, Flip. I'm just saying I sympathise a little bit with her if she's now experiencing this this backlash for for people mislabeling her original works. Oh, 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 but except, oh, I'm sorry. I just, okay, sorry, here's, (laughs) except... Except Julia Quinn. I think that nobody ever actually wanted Julia Quinn to write books with people of color in them or queer people. Mm-hmm. I, I think what is objectionable is that she literally in public appearances said that the reason she doesn't include people of color is A, because she basically doesn't have enough imagination to embody a different person, despite the fact that she writes from the point of view of men and mm-hmm. is a woman. She, she could not imagine that, which, like, I mean, kind of like, oh, okay, fine. But then she went so far to basically just say, 
well, I don't want to imagine that my characters are racist and I would have to make them racist in a world if I introduced characters who are people of color because yeah, it would be unbelievable <laughs> in a historical context. Yeah. And so I yeah. think that like a lot of the issues here are you have somebody who basically went from saying pretty problematic things and justifying the things she's doing and then profiting from these adaptations and people say, oh, well, Julia Quinn doesn't have a problem with it. I'm like, of course she doesn't have a problem with it. She's cashing the checks. Yeah, what yeah, else yeah. is she going to say? She's going to be like, oh, I love this. I think this is great. I'm so glad Shonda Rhimes is doing this. Like, of course she's going to say that. Mm. And, and I and honestly, I don't I don't think that Julia Quinn is somebody who would consider herself a racist, for example. I think that she's just somebody who has a lot of entrenched systemic things that she kind of can't imagine herself out of. Do you think that you know this this experience for her might try might might try to get her to stretch her legs culturally? I don't think so. But also, do we do we need do we care experience like this to to change one person's mind when it's so clearly already touched a nerve for a whole bunch of others? Like this this might just be us centering the author a little too strongly. Like so, I completely agree with that additional context. She sounds like she's she sounds like she's her reach has exceeded her grasp here. Like it sounds like she. The, I think the first point that you, you you articulated there that that you know I shouldn't put these people in because I don't understand them. Actually, you know what? In the climate in this climate right now, that is really really canny it's very very hard to write the way that authors used to write you know 200 years ago where they'd just be like oh i need a black person i'll just make up what a black person thinks and there are ways around it but you know most of them involve some some pretty kind of careful self examination and a lot of authors won't do that they just write memoir really so like there's 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 a bit of that but yeah the second point of oh i'd have to put racism in if i put people with with a race in it it's like yeah okay that's that's pretty garbage but yeah i still still do feel a little bit like this this feels emblematic of our cultural moment in which there is there is a real desire to be seen as an ally a real desire to be seen as amplifying marginalized voices and that desire is centered in in our kind of textual critique right now but there is also still a a a kind of real desire for just more of the same more of the same more of the same more of the same and it's actually really hard to tread that line especially when you find yourself writing in a very popular historical context like the regency popular perhaps for bad reasons and and having to kind of tread this line between a racist history that is quite hard to understand sensitively and an audience that is desperate for culturally inclusive regency stories like that's that is hard like forgetting her for a second that's hard yeah most people flip when they say historical accuracy mean the history I want to see. Exactly. Like, you look at a World War II film and people talk about historical accuracy, the thing they care about is does the tiger tank have enough wheels? They don't really care about any of the things well, they that Well, they, they don't care that they've all got about. their teeth and no one has syphilis. So, no, exactly. you know, yeah. are their historical accuracy arguments just bore me to tears and I'm not here for it. However, I'm going to no, move on to Virgin... <laughs> can I move on to Virgin River? So Virgin River is a contemporary setting, set in, I think, California. And, and like Bridgerton, each book has its own ending as part of the greater story but they've done something different the main characters are Mel and Jack and they're kind of hooked up but they haven't got together four seasons in or three seasons in I think they're up to four so they keep being the main characters all the way through now there's other characters and other stories going in town and they've they've plotted and seeded in the plots from the other books the first four or five books in to season one and so they're happening along in parallel to the main characters but by not ending the story of 
in season one of the main characters, that it actually pushes the story forward and keep, takes the audience with them. I came across this series before the TV show because I was at an IASPA conference, which is the International Association for Popular Romance Studies, and Shelter Mountain is one of the books. I think it's the second one. And that was used as an example because there's a domestic violence storyline and the men of the town who are all former Marines, I think, deal with the problem because the law can't. Oh, my God. I've just realised because you've talked about Virgin River a couple of times before. I'm getting it confused. Oh, my God. Remember that game you played where you were delivering mail? I was getting the two confused. (laughs) That's That's called Lake. I kept wondering, well, yeah, they're both bodies of water in the title. They, I kept wondering why the Marines didn't show up while you were delivering <laughs> Yeah, well, no, Virgin River's got Australian actor Martin Henderson playing Jack Sheridan and it's got Anna O'Toole, who you might remember from Smallville as, as the mother. And just, it's got a cast of familiar-looking faces, even if you don't know all of them. And, yeah, look, I, I'm enjoying it. I think it's as well and I think... While it's not as beautiful as to look at as Bridgerton, I think that the way they've interwoven the storylines is a better story structure for a series that's kind of set up in the same way. Have you seen it, Andrea, or do you have thoughts on that? I think I tried to watch the first episode and it was maybe too earnest for me. <laughs> yeah, the first one kind of is. Okay, yeah. It, and Virgin River is written by who again? The books? Robin Carr. Yes, and and Robin Carr is not one of the, in kind of like the side of romance that I spend a lot of time. So I I don't know if it like appealed to me enough to commit to it. Oh, look, I don't read a lot of contemporary romance that's not suspense. So I hadn't come across her other than at the Asper conference. So I read the first two books because of that. Just, you know, first one to get the setting and the second one because they talked about it in the presentation. So I just thought it was really interesting that they, rather than doing the book by book season the way Bridgerton did which they are constrained by the timeline I understand that they've kind of woven it together I feel a lot better and yeah the first I think two episodes are a little bit earnest but I think I think there's a couple of you know mysteries and and stuff that kind of propel it forward a bit better that's what I thought was good and look I just binged it over summer you know so it's not like I hanging out for it in fact I haven't even finished watching the most recent series it was just kind of a oh yeah this is kind of I can put it on while I'm doing something else show But I want to talk about Sweet Magnolias (laughs) because the first season was okay. And this is by Cheryl Woods. The first season was okay. Not great. I thought it wasn't as good as Virgin River in terms of contemporary romance series put on Netflix. Second season was just diabolical. They did a bait and switch and it became an inspirational romance in the second season. Every single episode is at church and referencing Jesus and making toasts to Jesus. And I'm like, what am I watching? The first season wasn't like this at all. And the three lead characters was about three friends who set up a beauty resort thing together. Becomes just more and more horrible. They're horrible people and I didn't want to watch it. So, yeah, won't, won't go back there. I haven't read the books. I'd been thinking about it. I've read summaries of it. It's it's in the inspirational slash Christian romance category, apparently, which I hadn't realised watching the first season. They touched on it lightly, very light handle with a very light touch. It's obviously set in the south of America, Georgia, I think, maybe. No, I'm not sure. Magnolias. I don't know. But it just got heavy-handed with a shovel. And I'm like, is this just me? And it's like it's on Twitter, it's on Reddit, it's on message boards going, what has happened to season two of this show? So I don't know whether the, whether the author got more input and said they had to include it a lot more or 
I don't know. It's, yeah, not good. Secret Jesus is the worst. Secret you know? Jesus. Yeah. Because there are inspirational romances. There are religious people who still like a romance story and there are entire lines of inspirational romance. That's what they call it. I don't read them because generally I, I don't enjoy it. And when I found it, I picked up a book by an author I like who writes romantic suspense and paranormal suspense, you know, with psychics and all kinds of stuff and, and majors and things. And this particular one was contemporary and it, it was all, it was very Jesus heavy. And I'm like, oh, I don't want to read this at all. So I did, it was a day did not finish for me. But the blurb didn't give me an indication of that and nothing I'd read of hers before gave me an indication that's what it was like. So that was, yeah, Secret Jesus was a, a surprise. So I'm not religious, not a believer, but like is 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 Secret Jesus a problem because that genre gets very pushy about it? I mean, you're not all, you're you're allowed to obviously not like religion in your in your casual fiction. The internal monologue is all about, you know, how do I do better for God and how can I have this relationship be good in God's eyes and all this kind of stuff. I'm like, yeah, I just want, you know, being on the run and and hiding from criminals really. I don't want this in my <laughs> There are some people who write and or read inspirational romance that basically say that to do a proper inspirational romance it's a relationship between three people god and the two people in the relationship mm -hmm. and of course because it's inspirational it's always a man and a woman so i think that basically then you're talking about another genre and if you if you want to read that and that's what you're expecting that's cool think just like any other genre or subgenre false advertising is always going to turn people off yeah fair Absolutely. enough I do have a suggestion, and if Sean Deland wants to listen to this, that'll be great, for a, for a book series that I think would be an amazing TV series. Um, it's got a lot of the elements that they've added to Bridgerton already in it, but it's contemporary and it's the Forbidden Heart series by Alicia Rye. It's three books, but it's an intergenerational soap opera because it goes back to the grandfathers who were friends who set up a department store together and one of the grandfathers was a Japanese-American who was put in an internment camp and he gave his holdings to his friend who gave them back at the end of the war and then it's got the parents and then it's got the children. So, like, there's already drama and and flashbacks there and it's it's already, you know, it's not doesn't have to be colour one class, it's already got the interracial characters, Alicia Rai is an Indian-American or South Asian-American, I think you'd call it. Is it particularly cinematic? Like, is there something in the book that you think... I mean, other than it's a cool story to go and tell. Yes, yes, because there's, the there's, there's very, very drama-driven, centred around the department store that's been in the families for three generations. And there's, you know, it's a bit, I won't say Melrose Place, probably more dynasty-ish. You know, there's children who've been estranged for decades and... and what about things like interiority or like cinematic, you know, like, or, or is they going to have to work really hard to put it on screen oh no i don't think they would have to work hard to put on screen the, f the first book is about a tattoo artist and the guy that she has a hookup with once a year on an anniversary and but she won't talk to him at any other time and then she comes back to town and doesn't tell him and they're the romeo and juliet's of their families so it's very soapish in it's when you read it it's like that's already there it feels like a soap opera have you read the forbidden hearts andrea have yeah or at the very least i've definitely read the first one with the tattoo artist and if i remember correctly this series is really sexy and very maybe maybe a little kinky and this was before Both. alicia Rai <laughs> started doing like rom-coms yep but yeah yeah no i really enjoyed that that book at least again i can't remember if i read the subsequent ones but 
I think to the point of would it make a really good adaptation? I think it's playing a lot with power, which is interesting. Yes. And it's it's dealing with these historical things that happened, but then making it personal and putting people into that context, which can be really interesting. And I think that because you have kind of the haves and the have nots in that situation, it could be quite cinematic because visually you could portray that and you could probably have a lot of fun with costuming and stuff like that. I I mean, look, if you're, if they're going to do it, if somebody's going to do it, make sure you keep it actually sexy. Yeah, absolutely. That's my, you know, if somebody's listening here. I've been watching a bit of spy thrillers on TV lately and I just wanted to mention quickly the BBC productions of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Smiley's People, which we'll talk about probably in another episode, but they are fantastic adaptations. Definitely worth watching if you're interested in that. What makes it what makes it good? Because I, I, I'm ashamed to admit, although you sent me a copy of it, I still haven't watched it, but I love the at least the first and the third book. The second book's a bit yeah, of yeah, a yeah, the drag. second book. And it's also um, unfilmable, which is why they never did it. What what makes it good? Because I didn't mind, I mean, I didn't love it, but I didn't mind the, the new movie. What makes the What makes the TV show better? The silences and the pacing and the the depictions of tradecraft in mm. their own right and like some of them are flashbacks like the Ricky Tar stuff and things like that but you get to see good spy tradecraft depicted and you get to see Alec Guinness as George Smiley just sitting there and you can see him processing it without saying anything and then he works it out so the second sounds incredible. The first sounds a little bit like historical accuracy. Like I'm I'm happy to have it on screen. Like don't get me wrong, that sounds cool. But the but to what extent is the tradecraft absolutely essential to the to the telling of the story? Well, in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Ricky Tar's narrating how he gets Arena's diary and, and they actually show it. He's not just saying sitting in a room telling it. I mean he is, but then they show the scenes of that. And then the opening of Smiley's People is the general being stalked in a park and he does his tradecraft and then Smiley goes to the park after General's body is found because he got the phone message saying, tell Max it's Moscow rules. Max is Smiley's codename mm. when he was the handler. And then George Smiley goes to the park and is explaining to his offsider what Moscow rules means and shows all the signs that General had left behind, like the yellow chalk. Yellow was General's colour in the, in the network and that means that he's hidden the role of microfilm somewhere in the tree and blah 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 so like it actually was actually fascinating to watch and really interesting way to open a mini series it does no i'm just i'm immediately thinking of immediately thinking of the the guy richie sherlock holmes films where they do this really fun little thing where sherlock sort of predicts everything that's going to happen in the fight and then it goes exactly as he plans and it's really cool but they eventually have to stop doing it because otherwise it gets boring so in the second film, they don't do it anymore. They just, they just, but they show you they're doing it in that they show Sherlock thinking for two or three seconds and then they, you know, do the rest of it in variable motion and you know that in his head he's just done the, he's done the, you know, back and forth. I'll do this, he'll do that. It's and quite in, cool. In Tinker Taylor, they actually show Peter breaking into the circus to steal the files mm. and how he does it and how he gets the bag out and all that kind of stuff. So... It's like it's, that's quite tense in a otherwise often cerebral story. Mm, I mean, this mm, is mm. old men looking at old files to try and work <laughs> out who a mole is. And, and as we've talked about before, Smiley knows who it is from the start. He knows at a visceral level who it is, but he has to, but he can't admit it. 
can't admit it to himself and he needs to do the process and get the evidence before he can face it. But yeah, absolutely fantastic show. Anyway, I will now move on. So what makes a good adaptation? We've touched on examples of different adaptations we think have worked or not worked. So what makes a good adaptation? Andrea, what are your thoughts? Okay, I think that it depends on how you're defining what you're looking for. Like always, it depends. But I I think there's two main buckets. And I think the first is something that happens to be an adaptation, but is just really good as its own thing, completely disconnected from the source material, whatever it is. It is enjoyable. Nobody needs to know anything about the other thing to enjoy it. It's good in the medium that it's in, format, etc. I think another way of possibly defining what makes a good adaptation is if you're trying to stick to, is it a faithful adaptation of the original? And I would define that as, did it do a good job of capturing the same mood or the message or the, the I, I mean, really like the mood or the feelings yeah. that you took away or you're supposed to take away, but translating that potentially to a different medium, a different format, and potentially a different audience mm. and perhaps a different, a different audience because just of time or a different culture, something like that. So, yeah. That's that's my answer. What about you, Dave? Yeah, I agree. I think I think the the main consideration is the thematic and emotional core of the original story. And I mean, you don't have to be slavish. Like that's yeah, definitely what you shouldn't be. No, absolutely. That's what I found with with Ender's Game. They spent so much time focused on the book that they forgot about the the, the meaning, <laughs> and maybe just acknowledge that not every text can be adapted. Just think about a pastiche maybe instead or yeah yeah look i think i think i completely agree with everything that's been said the only thing i would add andrea i liked your 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 i think mood is the right word i think that's exactly right keep the mood and mood is incredibly subjective and very hard to articulate but i think that's really the goal but for me a a good adaptation pays attention to the strengths of the form and the weaknesses of the form and even choosing the text to adapt like you know don't don't adapt a novel that's heavy on interiority and has an unreliable narrator into a film. That's stupid. Don't do it. Like, you can try. You can have a good old crack and maybe it'll turn out to be okay, but you probably, it's all a bit stacked against you at that point. So, yeah, I think as long as it pays attention to form, it'll be a good adaptation. And if it can do something miraculous, like, you know, do something that only a film can do and still holding on to the mood of the original story, then you've you've gone out of the, the realm of good adaptation to excellent adaptation. Yeah, I agree. And I guess that's with my compare and contrast, that was an example of you don't have to do things in one particular way. As Dave said, don't be slavish. Some things won't work, some things will, but trial and error, I guess, but, but that's difficult when you've got to have an end product. But maybe look at what other people have done. You don't have to do a word-by-word, scene-by-scene translation of something because that may not work. It may not have the, the soul or the mood of what you're trying to, to get across. And you'll end up with, you know, there's been some soulless adaptations of things. Yeah. You know, and even just things like you know, we mentioned in passing when we were discussing this, but, you know, like the Halo movie and, <laughs> and, and the Doom film, uh, yeah, things like that, you know, based on video games, movie. but they're terrible. <laughs> and and you didn't, don't go into a film based on a video game with necessarily high expectations and they couldn't even meet them. Yeah. If it's a low bar, you better vault it. Don't limbo. Yeah. 
So that brings us to the end of this episode of Pod Culture Ops. Thanks for joining us and we hope you've enjoyed the discussion. Let us know if you have any comments or thoughts about genre fiction adaptations that we should check out. You can contact us via our website. Andrea, can you let people know where they can find you? Absolutely. So you can listen to Shelf Love, that's two words, on any podcast platform. I have transcripts for most of my episodes on shelflovepodcast.com. You can also find me on shelflovepodcast.substack.com. And I forgot to mention, I'm actually the secretary of YASPR, the International Association for the Study of Popular Romance. And there is a conference in Birmingham, UK at the end of June 2023. And there is a hybrid virtual option. So if anybody would like to attend that virtually, you can do so. And you should check out, I think it's yasper.org, I-A-S-P-R.org to learn more about that. And there are several Australian romance scholars who will be speaking. And the conference is actually being planned by Jody McAllister. Oh, Another, I know Jody. Yeah, Nick and I know as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I went when it was in Sydney in 2018 and it was fantastic. So I'm jealous that I was not involved then. I've a bucket list, would love to go to Australia. So so maybe one day. Anyways, I'm I'm excited to at least get a chance to meet some of these international scholars in one place physically after after speaking with many of them. So I'm I'm really excited. And if folks cannot on the spur of the moment plan a trip to England, like seriously check out that hybrid option and and I'll be I'll be speaking there. Many other amazing scholars. So hope you can Hope to see you there. Thank you. And thanks again so much for having me on the podcast. I had a really fun time discussing this with you guys and just really honored, really appreciate having the opportunity to come and speak with you. So thank you. Well, thanks for, thanks for joining us. It has been a really, really great discussion. I'd love to have you back. Yeah, it's been yeah, great to have you. you. So that's a wrap on this episode. It's goodbye from my co-host. I'd like to finish with a quote from P.L. Travers about the adaptation of his book Mary Poppins to the screen. I cried when I saw it. I said, oh, God, what have they done? And I'm just going to pinch an episode title from Orphan Black, Endless Forms Most Beautiful. The Orphan Black titles are just amazing, every one of them. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) and until next time, it's goodbye from me.